ThriveMarket.com. Healthy living made easy. Guaranteed savings on your favorite organic brands delivered to your door. Healthy groceries shouldn't break the bank. Low price promise. Find a product cheaper elsewhere at rival eat price. How it works? Build your orders. Shop 6,000 plus wholesome products curated just for members. Never run out. Get recurring deliveries on a schedule personalized to you. You're in control. Easily add or remove items. Skip a delivery or pause anytime. Your new one-stop shop from organic pantry staples to clean beauty to non-toxic home. Shop by over 70 diets and values. Gluten-free, ketogenic, organic, vegan, thoughtfully sourced seafood. Thrive Market is aligned closely with key industry watchdogs, identified partners who catch sustainable and traceable seafood. For $5 a month for a risk-free trial for 30 days. Fast-free, carbon-neutral shipping. Free gifts and samples. Every membership gives to someone in need. Better for you and the planet. Ethical and sustainable sourcing. Carbon-neutral shipping. Zero waste warehouses, recyclable, compostable packaging. Thrive also gives every fa- every annual membership sponsors a free one for a family in need. Thrive's mission is to help make organic foods more accessible. Good morning. Here is Chapter Seven of American Dirt by Janine Cummins. It's a victory to get out of Acapulco alive. Lydia knows this. Yes, they've cleared the first secret hurdle. She'd like to feel her son's surge of relieved optimism, but she knows too much about the reach and determination of Los Jardineros and their champagne to experience any real respite from her fear. She stares out the window and keeps her head low. In the early days of marriage, Lydia and Sebastian took frequent trips to Mexico City trading cities with the tourists. They'd both gone to college. There it was that where they met, and though any, neither of them had any desire to live in the capital, they enjoyed being close enough to visit. In those days, the state of felt safe and insulated. The country had its share of narcotraficantes back then, but they felt as distant as Hollywood or Al-Qaeda. The violence would erupt in a concentrated faraway burst, first see a dozen wires, then Sinaloa, then Michoacan, Apacuca ringed by mountains and sea and retained its sunny bubble of protective tourism, the salty ocean air, the wheeling calls of the seagulls, and the, the big sunglasses, the wind whipping down the boulevards to toss the latest hair around their sun-brown faces, all, it all testified the swollen illusion of immunity. It typically took Lydia and Sebastian just over four hours to drive from Acapulco to Mexico City, in their orange field because Sebastian sped like a lunatic around the gentle mountain curves up and down the steady close of the highway. Even though his driving was questionable, she, the, the road was broad and smooth. Lydia looked out over the landscape at the sunshine, leaning between the distant peaks, the terraces of the clouds, stepping down toward the irregular earth, the rooftops and steeples of the fleeting villages, and she and she felt safe with her new husband in their little orange car. At, Chilpang Singo. They often stopped for a coffee or a sandwich. Sometimes they met with friends. Sebastian's college roommate lived there with his wife and the baby who became Sebastian's godson. And then a couple hours later in the Mexico City, they'd find a cheap hotel and walk the city for hours. Museums, shows, restaurants, dancing, window shopping, the boss stayed Chapu Tepec. Or sometimes they wouldn't leave their hotel room at all. And Sebastian's sweaty 
laughing tangled in sheets would less whisper into his wife's ear that they could have stayed in Acapulco and saved some money. Lena tips her head back against the bus seat behind her. It's inconceivable that those memories are from ten years ago. Inconceivable that Sebastian is really gone. She feels a monstrous lurch inside her, so she reaches out to touch the soft curve of Luca's sleeping ear. Everything devolved so rapidly in recent years. Acapulco always had a heart for extravagance, so when at last she made her fall from grace, she did so with all the spectacular pageantry the world had come to expect of her. The cartels painted the town red. As her buses passes at the crooked shoulders of trees and a scar of blasted rock face where the road cuts through the countryside, Lydia notes that they've already reached Ocotito. She prays there will be no roadblock between here and Mexico City, but she knows that's impossible. Even before Acapulco fell, the roadblocks around Guerrero, as in much of the country, had become a menace. They are managed by gangs and narco traficantes or police who may also be called narco-traficantes or soldiers who may also be narco-traficantes or in recent years by auto-defenses armed militants formed by the inhabitants of certain towns to protect their communities from cartels. And these auto-defenses may also, of course, be narco-traficantes. In character, the Roblox range from inconvenient to life-threatening. It's because of the existence of the more serious ones that Lydia and Sebastian stopped traveling, particularly to the capital shortly after Luca was born. The reason Luca had been had been to Mexico City only once before, when he was too young to remember it, and the reasons Lydia allowed her driver's license to expire, expire almost two years ago. It's so, <coughs> seldom loved Uncle Pocanel, and Lydia, like most women in Mexico's more precarious states, never travels alone by car anymore. This truth has felt like a growing but theoretical irritation to Lydia over the last couple of years in effort to her contemporary feminine autonomy, but today it feels like a very real noose around her neck. She may have managed to escape from Acapulco for now, but she knows they're still trapped in Guerrero State, and she can feel the roadblocks all around the periphery of her mind closing in on them. Without waking Lydia, Lydia spreads out the map and pins it with a one hand to the seat in front of her. She stays and spreads the spreading veins of the roadways and feels the ticking futility of that action. If only the bias could pass unimpeded along these highways as quickly and safely as her finger traces brought along the map, if the roadblocks were represented on the map key, their icon might be a tiny AK-47, but they're not on the map because they're always moving to maintain the element of surprise. Lydia knows that every road between here and Mexico City will have at least more one roadblock occupies most Jardineros. She knows that the boys banding those roadblocks will be looking especially for her and for Luca. She imagines that some of those boys are both ambitious and violent, that they'll be eager to recognize her. She wonders what reward they might receive for delivering her, either whole or a piece of to her friend. Lydia tries to refold the map along its previous creases, but her patience is flimsy and she shoves it to the pocket of seat in front of her. She tries to think clearly to review their options. Most people she would ordinarily turn to for help are dead, and even if they weren't asking for help is akin to walking to a friend's kitchen wearing a suicide vest. The risk of her very presence seems too selfish to consider, although she is aware that Japan Cinco is calling with hardy arrows. She also knows that if they hope to avoid a roadblock, they will have to get off there. Boarding this bus felt like a tremendous victory only a few minutes ago, but maybe it was a mistake. Maybe there was mere 
Speeding into a trap, she watches Lucas rise and fall of his chest as he sleeps, and she attempts to ma- match the rhythm of his breath. When she was a kid, Lydia loved the choose-your-own-adventure books. At the end of each chapter, you'd have to say what to do next, ride your bike to the park, flip to page 23, follow the mystery, mysterious stranger, flip on, flip to page 42, whenever Lydia didn't like the outcome of the plot or something, even when she did, she would backtrack and make a different choice. She liked being able to revise her own decisions, like knowing that nothing was permanent, that she could always start over and try again. But it was always true that sometimes it didn't matter. The maze of the book seemed to funnel her back to the same result, no matter what she decided. This morning, she and Luca had selected the 6.20 a.m. bus from Diamante, and now it's driving north without delay. She closes her eyes and prays it, has, it was the right choice. Luca wakes up as the bus approaches Chopang Cinco. Lydia can't see much from the seat halfway back, but she tries. She leans into the aisle and looks for a roadblock ahead. Luca leans his forehead against the window and presses his finger against the spongy gra- glass. Mamie, look, he yells, what are they? Oh, on the ridge above them. Rows of colorful houses snake up the hillside, all in matching clusters, red, blue, green, purple. Oh, they're just houses, Amortito. Only houses has turned into a bright young morning. They've been on the road almost two hours. Why are they so colorful like that? Just for decoration, I think. They look like Legos. Lydia's breath hitches in her chest every time the bus strokes or turns or changes its speed. But there's no stopping, no armed men standing in the road, and no and soon buildings line both sides of the street, Mill Street, and they've made it. They're in Chilpancinco. She makes a sign of the cross over herself and traces a small version of Lucas' forehead. They pull up in front of, of a familiar building, a miniature of the station they embarked from the Alpha, Alca, they embarked from in Alcapulco this morning. The driver stops the bus and there's a loud hiccuping noise as he engages the brakes. He stands and announces, passes mustache, five minutes stop. A couple passengers stand up from their seats to stretch at the front. Someone gets off for a cigarette, but Lydia and Licka are the only ones who begin gathering their things to disembark. Everyone on board is heading to the capital. Are we getting out, Mamie? Yes, Mia Moore. But then she stands next to her seat in the narrow aisle with her backpack strapped to her shoulders and looks down at her sleepy son at the top of his tousled head, tousled black head, and she wishes they could make a run for it. She wishes they could hunker down in there, camouflage among the travelers in this, on this bus, and all the breath all the way to Mexico City. Maybe they'd make it, maybe the roadblock between here and there would be innocuous, a brief stop, a fistful of bills, a line goes waving through, thump, thump, two slaps on the side of the bus as it rolls on its merry way. Lydia manages, Lydia manages it all with a quiver of hope. The bus emerges from the terminal now and gets back on the bus. New passengers begin to board and the driver takes her tickets one by one. Mamie, come on. As the shadow of the bus pulls away from the sidewalk, Lydia and Luca emerge into the blinking daylight of the Chopin Tinko. She feels both relieved and disheartened to be off the bus, but she takes a moment to remind herself that she's managed to get them this far, 19 hours and 68 miles away from the episode of Calamity. With each minute and mile that passes, Lydia knows she's really increased her chances of survival. She needs to take encouragement where she can find it. She mustn't despair at the enormity of the task yet ahead. She should face only the immediate six steps, points of best as college roommate. On the sidewalk, she tightens the straps on Luca's backpack, which are drooping too far from his shoulders, from his small shoulders. He looks like a turtle with an inadequate shell, yet somehow he, he's managed to draw his moist, 
most vulnerable part tightly within themselves. She wonders about the lasting effects of that retraction. What's next, maybe? You look at Aster in the flat tone of voice that seems to be his only inflection now. Let's find an internet cafe, he says. But you have Pappy's tablet, right? It's powered off in her backpack, and she's not going to turn it back on. She also left a SIM card of her own cell phone in, his gar- in a garbage can outside the bank of Playa's Salatia. Playa Calatia. She felt marginally co- crazy, paranoid, as she fired the thing well with a fingernail, but she didn't want to be a blue dot flashing on some remote hostile screen. She just approved of Sebastian's Yankees cap slightly lower on her son's forehead. She would buy one for herself too, she thinks. Let's go, she says. El Casca Bellito Internet Cafe is just opening for the day when Lydia purchases a coffee and 50 minutes to look for a more closely at map online. She buys Luca a bag of plantanitos too, but the green foil package sits unopened on the desk. Lydia chooses a computer in the back corner, one that has two chairs and a privacy partition so they're hidden from view of the door. Luca drives his heels up to the seat of the chair and rests his chin on his knees, but his eyes remain unfocused on the plantanitos while Lydia studies the screen. From Chilpancinco, there are only two viable routes to Mexico City and both are virtually guaranteed to have roadblocks. Lydia chews the inside of her mouth and her knee undertakes jittery hop beneath the desk. They can't exactly walk to Mexico City from here. Lydia's never been claustrophobic, but the day she feels so trapped she can feel it in her legs like panicky longing to stretch. She can't see any way out. This may well not help. She opens Facebook and finds Sebastian's friend. He's an attorney and his profile shows the name of his law firm, but it's Sunday and it won't be open. She checks out his about tab and scrolls down to his legs, a local newspaper, a couple of non-profits, his alma mater, a fan page by Adidas sneakers, so much football, but then there are bingo, a Pentecostal church here in Chilpang Cinco, a worship service at 9 o'clock. She looks, at, looks it up and finds it's about two miles away. There's a bus down the main thoroughfare, and 20 minutes later, Luca and Lydia are on it. Lydia worries she wrote the address down wrong because when they get off the bus, the street lined with shops, all closed on a Sunday morning. They find a number they're looking for for sandwich between an electronic store and a jeweler, but just as she's double-checking the address on a scrap of paper on hand, a young man pushing a baby carriage approaches open the door for a pregnant wife. Lydia peeks inside before the door swings open closed, and she sees a row sees rows of folding chairs facing a stage. Luca tugs on her sleeve and directs her attention to a sign she hadn't noticed. Propped in the window, Iglesia Pentecostal Tabernaculo de la Victoria. There's no steeple or stained glass, but this is the place. Inside is bigger than she imagined with low ceilings and fans attached to the walls. There's a full drum kit and amplifier and some huge speakers. Sit behind the pulpit, there's no cross, no pot of holy water at the entrance, but Lydia blessed herself out of habit. And Luca follows her example. She waits for some bubble of feeling to follow or whisper from her legion of born, newborn angels or perhaps a low down ridge of God instead, but nothing comes. The spiritual undesirata undesir- de alma because she has room only for fear. They sit 
sit in the last row near the wall and Lady stows her backpacks under their folding chairs. She covers her face with her hands and instructs Luca to do the same, but it's not veneration. It's only for concealment. In any case, of those Hardinos are Pentecostal Christians in case they traffic drugs on a Monday, stab people on a Thursday, and then come seeking forgiveness on Sunday. It doesn't seem more outlandish than anything else has happened. Through the screen of her interlaced fingers, Lydia watches a square of stark sunlight and on the tiled floor grow brighter every time someone opens a glass door to come in. I fear the Congress knows them in the back row and give them a welcoming nod or a smile, but most walk right past and find their usual seats. The church is almost half full by the time Carlos appears behind his wife and children. The wife greets everyone with hugs and has a sharp voice of uh, gabacha above the hum of reverent conversation in the room. Lydia half stands from her seat and lifts a hand. The great at God doesn't see her. The youngest son all alerts him, points to Lydia in the corner, and calls her turn. Lydia, oh my goodness, what are you doing here? His voice ar- arrives before he does, but soon he moves up between the rows of seat chairs to where she's standing. He embraces her. It's so lovely to see you. Wow, what a surprise. Luca watches while this man, Carlos, kisses Mamie on both cheeks and holds both her hands in his. This must be Luca, the man says, bending toward him where he's still seated on the folding chair. You look so much like your papa, your pappy. He straightens up. Where's Sebastian? Did he come with you? You haven't heard the news? Maybe his voice sounds far away. Luca can't tell without having to look at Carlos' face as suddenly shifted. That is strange, so strange to a sickly guard that he's already building the internal for he'll need in order to hold the horrific story Mamie's about to tell him. Come, Carlos says. We can talk upstairs. There's an office there that's not quite accurate to say that Luca zones up while his mother and Carlos talk because that description would indicate some active participation to uh, of absten- abstention on his part. Instead, his consciousness, like a helium bloom fastened to this person by some taut and fragile string, booms up and floats away. His body sits at the table with his backpack at his feet, his legs swivel to the chair beneath his weight, his hands play with a nearby dish for paper clips, hooking them together into long strands, but his eternal madness are on vacation. The grown-ups glance at him now and again, pass the barricades of their warbled voices and ashen faces, and his body responds to their questions with the appropriate nods and shrugs. A paper cup of water set on the table before him, and he takes a dutiful sip. Downstairs, someone's playing the drums and an electric guitar. Looking can feel the ba- bass vibrate through the floor. They're then they're in Carlos' car and they're driving through the streets of a city to Carlos' house. Mamie sits in the back seat and tries to hold Luca's hand. He sees this. Mamie sees Mamie's hand covering his own, and it's the warmth and press permits that bring him back. Once they pass out of La, La Zona Central, Lucas sees that Chilpancingo isn't so different from Acapulco. There are no seagulls here, no tourists, and the streets aren't as broad, but there are many colorful shops and taxis. People wearing their church clothes on, in the sunshine. There are ladies with handbags slung over their shoulders, boys with slipshod tattoos, plenty of bright, foamy graffiti. The houses are all painted in vivid colors. Lucas watches them flip by like cards in a deck after three and a half songs. I played on the radio. Carlos turns onto a street that's slightly wider than the others. There's an arch- arching canopy of shade trees that creates a sense of centering, of entering a secret place, a, hush- a hushy hideout. In the middle of the block stands a handsome white church with modest twin bell tower at the front. It's the kind they're used to, Catolica. The other bell- 
building on the crowded street stand back from the little church giving it room. Carlos pulls it to a parking lot. Carlos' house is turquoise, it's not color of the middle stripe of ocean in Acapulco and between the light sandy stripe near the shore and the darker blue at the horizon when you stand on the steps at Plaza España and look out at on a sunny day, the house feels big and modern, even though it's attached to an identical purple on one on the right and identical peach color on one on the left. Carlos carries their bags inside. Carlos' wife is named Meredith, and she's white. She's from Estados Unidos, and that's a fact Luca could gather without being told. Just for the quick glimpse he got of her in the church before Carlos took them upstairs. Her voice, her clothes, her way of holding people by the shoulders and shaking them slightly while she speaks to them. Look at and investigate the empty house and family photographs. A closer look at the three boys who have all, who all have Meredith's pink complexion and Carlos' dimples. The middle looks at the, about the same age as Luca. Meredith eventually arrives home without those boys who stayed behind from even more church. And with her comes Luca's experience of propriety grief. Propriety is a word Luca knows in Spanish but not in English. Because he knows lots of words other eight-year-olds don't, like vicos and bombastic and serendipity, but he's never truly understood the meaning of the word proprietario until now. He's never felt the feeling before. It rumbles through him like a steamroller with a broad, flattening crush, because who is this woman crying for Pappy? Who is this lady with her quivering features and her leaking eyes and her trembling hands and her need to be consoled? It surprises look at his ungenerous interpretation of such raw emotion. After all, she's she'd been Pappy's friend at one time, or at least she'd married Pappy's friend, and she'd like Pappy well enough to make him a god the godfather of her elder son. So why would should she be saddened, even traumatized by the news of a of an unexpected violent death? Why shouldn't she weep and lament and exhibit her extension? Luca cannot therefore explain why the display of it irritates himself. When she tries to hug him, he can't endure it and maybe doesn't make him. She intercepts him and, make, and takes him to the bathroom and splashes water space, and when they return, Meredith has composed herself. She urges Mamie to sit while she makes tea for everyone. The tea doesn't move from the cup, but the conversation goes on for a long time regarding regardless, and Luca lets most of it pass without landing. Meredith met Carlos when she was in college. She was a college admissioner from Indiana, and she's Still involved with that fairway cornfield church that summer. She also she first came here. She fell in love with Carlos and with his country. She liked the way mixes were easy in their faith. She liked the sense of being in a country where it wasn't controversial or weird to talk openly about God. In Mexico, prayer was normal then. Public expected. Normal then public expected. To Meredith, those cultural conventions felt miraculous, so she and Carlos married young, and then she made it her last work to preserve the link between Chopancinco and the Indiana church community to share the experience of this place with others. In fact, right now, there are 14 Indian and missionaries visiting here for spring break. Those missions are being hosted in Chopancinco by the church Carlos and Meredith attend. Meredith is the chief coordinator of this annual visit and two additional ones each summer. It's a non-stop wheel of blonde Indiana missionaries cogging their way through Guero. The current group will fly home to Estados Unidos Wednesday afternoon, so the church's three passenger vans are scheduled to depart from Mexico City at 7 o'clock Wednesday morning. This is where the conversation takes an amplified urgency. Lucas sits up in his chair and fiddles with the handle of Mamie's teacup.
Ralph says they can go in the shuttle. Of course, it's perfect. Mary says nothing with her mouth but conveys plenty with her eyes, and none of it is very accommodating. And then Mamie says we'd be safe through, we'd be safe getting through the Roblox if we were on the church shuttle. They'd never expect you to be with missionaries, Carl says. Mamie shakes her head. They wouldn't even look. And then Meredith is using her mouth, safe for who? Maybe safer for you, but I'm sorry, I can't put all those kids at risk. She shakes her head, and Luca has the notion that she looks nothing like the woman who was crying for Pappy just a few minutes ago. She's different colors entirely, and her spongy features have hardened into new shapes. Maybe opens her mouth, but manages to close again without speaking. She fidgets with the hoop, with the loops of gold on her neck. Carlos taps his pointer finger on the table between them. They all look at the, that figure. Meredith, there's no other option for them. I understand your concern, but this is the only way to get them safely out of Guero. If we don't help them, they could die. Could this could is an understatement, Mamie says. But Meredith crosses arms and shakes her head some more. Her halt is her hair is some color between brown and gold, and it's pushed back from her face with a black headband. Her nose is red, cheeks red, eyes hard blue. Mamie lifts her head, teacup, and tries to a sip, but when she s- sets it back down, look at it, tell it didn't swallow any. She didn't swallow any. I'm sorry, it's too risky, Mary says. It's not fair to do that to the kids, to their parents in Indiana. This is exactly the kind of thing those families fear. Some of the kids down here in New Mexico. Do you have any idea what it takes to placate those fears? We give them our word their kids will be safe. I personally guarantee their safety. I tell them this kind of thing will never happen. Mamie clears her throat and her face looks like a bomb about to go off. She, but she breathes, breathes through it. This kind of thing. Meredith puts her eyes closed. I'm sorry, I don't mean, I don't even know what to say. Sebastian's dead, Meredith, Carlos says. My friend, your friend. He's gone, and 15 more besides. This is not the kind of thing that happens ever. Not even here. Do you know anyone else who's lost 16 family members in one day? Meredith curls at him, but he plows ahead. We have to help them. It's the suffering of our friend. means nothing. If those kids can't be allowed to see us, to see Mexico as it really is, then what are we even doing here? And they are they just drive-by Samaritans? Carlos, don't, Meredith says, and Luca has a feeling this is a very old conversation between them. They just don't want to make pancakes and take selfies with skinny brown children, Carlos asks. Meredith slaps her hand against the table and the, and the tea ripples in the cups. But maybe it intercepts the rising anger between them. She speaks like a void, like she's left the conversation entirely, and only her voice remains behind. She chants without any expression Sebastian, Yemi, Alex, Jennifer, Adrian, Paula, Arturo, Estefani, Nico, Joaquin, Diana, Vincente, Rafael, Lucia, and Rafaelito, Mama. They're gone. They are gone. All gone. A lump rises in Lucas' throat and grows one size with each name that leaves Mamie's mouth. He looks at Meredith to see how she'll respond, but her face is an unreadable smear of pink and blue. Instead, as Carlos replies, placing his hands on the table, We will help you, of course we will. Meredith stands to face behind a chair, her arms crossed in front of her. Linda, I can't pretend to know what you're going through. It's unmanageable, and yes, of course we'll do everything in power to help, but please try to understand. I also have to weigh my moral repertoire. My moral responsibility here. Sometimes there are no easy answers. Maybe you chance her hands over her forehead. I don't want to cause trouble for anyone. I just want to get Luca out of here. I have to. For the first time since all of this started, Luca thinks she might unravel. He watches intensely and her voice cracks. Please, we're desperate. 
Carlos looks up at his watch. Honey, listen, I understand your resistance. I do. But some things are our easy answers. This is an easy answer. If we don't help them, if they get on the bus alone, if they get stopped at a roadblock and killed because we didn't have the courage to save them, can you live with that? Can we? Meredith sighs and leans over to the, the back of her chair. I don't know. I don't know. Just pray on. He says, give it up to God. She turns to click on the electric kettle, even though no one has yet managed to choke down the first cup of tea. With her back to the table, she says, Are you sure you're even looking for you now? She faces the table again and leans against the cannon. Wasn't Sebastian the example they wanted? They got him, so maybe it's over now. Luca looks from Meredith back to Mamie, and she meets his gaze and pauses, as if weighing how much to say in front of him. Perhaps she remembers that fear is good for him now. He should be afraid. No, Mamie, so quietly. He won't stop until he finds us. Thank you for listening to this chapter. Have a good week, and stay safe.